So yeah, hey everyone, my name's Evan. Uh, my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church with the team. And uh, we're walking through 1 Corinthians on Sundays, and we finish 1 Corinthians this month, you guys. So we've been in this letter that Paul wrote. Uh, we've been in this for a while. April 25th is the last 1 Corinthians teaching. And then May and June will be a series that we've been looking forward to for a while called Teach Us to Pray. And we're going to look at the Psalms for how to pray through diverse phases of life, like pr how to pray through depression, doubt, deconstruction, uh, praying through gratitude, gratitude uh, in spite of cynicism, authentic joy in a time of cynicism. And, and, and also how do science and faith and prayer fit together? We're going to hear from an actual scientist in our church on that. Um, all that, you guys. The Psalms give us the widest possible spectrum of human emotion and prayer. The Psalms were the prayer book of Jesus. And so we're going to let that book shape us for May and June. How's that sound? I cannot wait for that. Um, yeah, so today we're in 1 Corinthians 15. Open your Bibles there, picking up in verse 24. This is the longest chapter in the Bible about the future, the shape of our future, end times or whatever. The technical word is eschatology, all about what's to come and where God is taking this thing. Last week was Easter, and in that teaching, we talked about what happens after heaven, right? And that's resurrection. Yes, Jesus' followers go to be with Jesus in heaven when we die, but heaven is not the end of the story. Go back and listen to last Sunday. And today's text now is all about what happens after resurrection. Our bodily resurrection isn't even the end of the story. What happens after that is what Paul here calls the end or the death of death or, quote, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God. That's what Paul calls it. So open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 24 to 34. We're going to follow Paul through a little bit of eschatology. It'll be thick at first, but don't worry. Paul brings it all down, super practical, to how we live today, which makes sense, right? Because remember, our eschatology is really important because what you believe about the future shapes how you live in the here and now. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, if you believe this creation is not going to be healed but destroyed forever, along with our physical bodies, then what's the point of caring for creation? Like, why take care of the planet if it's not our true home? Why dig fresh water wells in Burkina Faso if God's just going to blow up this world forever? Why work against injustice and poverty and disease if God's just going to erase and reset the universe? I mean, why don't I just spend my time on money, time and money on myself and the things I personally enjoy, like the things that I think are meaningful, like my education, my church, my vacations or whatever, and then just go to heaven when I die. And that's if that's like, why not if that's it? Why do all that other stuff? It's all kind of a waste of time if we just go away somewhere else at the end of the story forever. If that's how we think about our future, it bleeds into everything we do and how we think about the present. But if the gospel ends not with the destruction of all things, but with the redemption of all things, to use Jesus's words, and then we play a part in that, my goodness, that's going to shape how we live in the here and now. And this is Paul's main point in this chapter. For followers of Jesus, our future is not an evacuated planet Earth, but a renewed Earth populated by the resurrected family of God ruling and reigning with Jesus himself. 
That is the shape of our future. We're looking forward to our bodies rising from the dead, followed by the renewal of all things. Here's how Paul says it. 1 Corinthians 15, start in verse 23. He says, but each in turn, meaning we'll rise in order. First Jesus, then when he comes, those who belong to Jesus, right? Christ rose first, and when he comes back, the rest of us will rise. (laughs) And then look what happens, verse 24. It says, then... Sometime after our resurrection, the end will come. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Okay, so that's Paul summing up the whole end of the human story. Kind of like picture a newspaper headline. This is the summary. It's like a news headline. The end will come. Jesus hands his father the kingdom after defeating death and all his friends, right? That's quite a headline. It makes me want to read the article. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't get the whole article. We don't get all the details. But we do have some details. The words Paul uses for then in Greek, it's not the usual word for then. It's a pair of words that might suggest a significant period of time. Okay, so Paul sees the new creation kind of as a two-act play. Act one, curtain comes up and it opens with Jesus dying and rising. Beginning of the new creation. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam. Okay, he dies and rises. And at that moment, project new creation kicks off on planet earth. And the powers of Satan, sin and death, they're no longer the biggest bullies on the block. The kingdom of God has officially moved into our neighborhood in a person, the risen Jesus of Nazareth. So when his body rose from the dead, it sent a message to all the evil powers. Your clock is now ticking, Satan. That was the message at Jesus' resurrection. All the evil powers in the world, their number is now up. It's just a matter of time. And now, now it's us. The spirit-filled church of Jesus is carrying on his authority and his power over Satan and over sin. And right now the kingdom just keeps on gaining ground. This is where we are now. And it's all building up to what the scriptures call the appearing or the second coming of Jesus. Verse 23 calls it his arrival. At which time God raises up our bodies (laughs) to meet Jesus. And that boom triggers act two. So act two is the beginning of the end. And again, we don't have a ton of details, which is fine. You guys, the thing about the Bible, um, it's not interested in giving humans everything we want to know. (laughs) The Bible instead gives us everything we need to know in order to be saved from sin and death and live the spirit-empowered life of Jesus in the world. That's what the Bible is for. It's not for answering every question we come up with. So what we don't know... um, We don't know everything we want to know about the future, but here's what we do know. Here's what we know about act two. So so after Jesus physically returns to this world and all his followers are raised from the dead, according to verse 25, it says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So, So for an unknown length of time, Jesus will be reigning here on earth, (laughs) and using his power to stop every last trace of evil. What will that look like? Only God knows, you guys. Apparently when Jesus appears and we rise from the dead, Jesus has work to do. 
I don't even, it's crazy to think about. He's bringing down, possibly bringing down uh, the last remaining corrupt governments, bringing down the last remaining narcissistic politicians and demonic powers and systemic injustice. But we just don't know what that will look like. So wild to think about, you guys. So, so Jesus returns, starts cleaning house, but here's the crazy part, okay? He will involve you in that cleaning project. He involves us. How do we know this? From Daniel in the Old Testament. Jesus quoted Daniel a ton, and Daniel's famous for looking ahead to new creation. So here's Daniel's vision. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Daniel's vision in, in three phases, okay? Uh, phase one, God comes in a man, Jesus. He comes in a human and launches the unstoppable kingdom. And that's in Daniel 2.44. He says, in the time of those kings, all the bad kings or whatever, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and it won't be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms, bring them to an end and God's kingdom will endure. That began when Jesus came and he said, the kingdom of God is now among you. And so uh, phase two then is when Jesus ascended to the father at the end of his life. When Jesus ascended, the global church was born, and that's us. And now the kingdom keeps growing. So phase two is in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, that's Jesus, and he's coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. That's Jesus ascending at the end of his life, approaching the Father. And in that moment, verse 14 says, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Quote, all nations and people of every language worshiped him. You guys, that's the church. That's what's happening now. And his dominion is still that everlasting dominion that will not pass away. So, so we are well into phase two because every nation and every language is calling on the name of Jesus right now. This is what's happening, phase two. And, and, and then we're waiting for phase three. When the people of Jesus rise to share in Jesus's job and power. That's in Daniel 7, 26. Look at this. This is the part that just blows a fuse in my brain. It says, but the court of heaven will sit. That's the heavenly authority watching. And his power, meaning Satan's power, the source of all injustice will be taken away. So Satan's power taken away, completely destroyed forever, I quote. And it says, then the sovereignty, power, greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. You hear that? Like, so the power Jesus has and uses will be had and used by us. And the kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, it says. What did we just read, you guys? Like, if it wasn't in the Bible, I would not believe this stuff. As if our bodies rising from the dead wasn't enough, we are then going to participate with Jesus in reigning and judging evil and using heaven's power alongside Jesus. Like, is this for real? Yes. If this is surprising to you, if this is like, I don't even know what this all means. Listen, this was God's intent all along. Did you know this? us ruling, reigning, and filling the world with life and creativity alongside God. Does anyone know God's very first command for humans? Anyone? The very first command in the Bible. Go ahead, shout it out. 
I think I heard it, maybe, through a mask. It was very muffly. He says, in Genesis 1, so God created humans in his own image, in the image of God, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply in number, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over creation. That's the first command. An exciting, amazing job. That's, that's a delightful command, you guys. From the very beginning, we were made for this. We were meant to subdue evil and fill the world with generosity and creativity to rule with God himself. From the very beginning, this was the human project, to rule and care for the world. This is our job. And it's still our job, but let me ask you a question. How are we doing with this today? Like ruling the world, taking care of creation, how are we, do how are we doing with that? How's that going for us? Yeah, not great. I mean, so, first of all, are we submitted to God's rule? Not so great at that. What about ruling and taking care of the earth? Depends, right? Depends on how you look at it. Humanity's kind of hit and miss on taking care of the world, right? Like on one hand, humans have brought insane advances in tech and medicine and education, saving countless lives, right? Science and sustainability. There are tons of places we filled the earth with goodness, you guys. Humans are not all bad. <laughs> We filled the world with beauty. In, did you know in 2015, San Diego was the only North American city to be selected by National Geographic to be among the world's, quote, smart cities? Good job, guys. World smart city, San Diego, the only North, North American city in the documentary series. Because of our urban planning and sustainability, quality of life, and all of the access to education, there's so much about San Diego that reflects the best of humanity. It's an awesome place to live. On the other hand, as we have worshipped the serpent <laughs> in the garden instead of God, we have chosen to bring evil into the world too, right? War, poverty, injustice, pollution, porn, crime, malls and fast food, you guys, like just the evils of the world, you know? The list goes on. According to San Diego.gov, our city is ranked number one in concentration of military and defense assets in the world. Uh, don't get me wrong, I am not at all saying the military itself is bad. I'm simply pointing out that military presence is proof of the ongoing reality of evil in the world, right? This is the world we have made. The point is, humanity is a mixed bag. At our best, we are an imperfect reflection of the creator. And even when we get it right and we make great art and we make peace and innovate, it's often about making our own name great rather than Jesus's. Even when we get it right. But here's the good news. <laughs> Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the perfect human, the human project is back on track. Finally, it's back on track. It will inevitably be fully healed the human project. And listen, whoever now admits their need of God's forgiveness can join that project by grace. Every single human being is invited. What does that look like? It looks, it looks like you saying, Lord, like Jesus, I, I admit 
I have fully contributed to the ruin and injustice in the world through my own sin, and I cannot save myself. I cannot heal myself. Only you can, Jesus. So I come under your authority with my whole life, my finances, my relationships, my sexuality, my mind, my emotions, my whole human self belongs to you, Jesus. When you confess that and get baptized into Jesus's family, you're part of the forever family of God where the human project continues on forever in a fully renewed world. You guys, let me ask you, can I ask you all, is that the shape of your future? If you are a follower of Jesus, it is. It is, you can't stop it. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. You're very brave. I always like to say that because it's quite tremendous. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you forget what it's like to be the religious minority in a group like this. Tons of courage. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, listen, this glorious future can be yours. The invitation is open to you. We'd love to baptize you. Aaliyah mentioned May 2nd. The waters of baptism are the gateway to the family of Jesus. Sign up for that. Like, we'd love to talk you through what that looks like as the whole church cheers you into the water. Because verse 26, look what it says. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. That's the end of the final act. We will see God's victory when death dies. What will that look like? It's almost like a whole new physics. (laughs) The death of human death. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he talks about this. He says that's God's goal all along. The whole point of the Bible story is from the Garden of Eden through Israel, through the whole Jesus story, God's ultimate goal, Ephesians 1.10, is, quote, to bring all things to unity in heaven and on earth in Christ. Everything gets brought into Christ, the whole universe. That's God's goal, which means everything that stands opposed to Jesus, when everything becomes united in Christ, everything that is opposed to him and rebelled, rebellion against him will be eliminated from the known universe. This means death and all the friends of death. Gone. And keep reading, verse 27. For, quote, he has put everything under his feet. Paul does something brilliant here, you guys. He quotes Psalm 8 but he tweaks the words. Paul has the authority to do The writers of the Bible have the authority to do that with the Bible. Paul kind of tweaks the words of the psalm to make a huge point. In this case, the original psalm says this, you made, the ruler, you made humans rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. The original psalm says their feet. But Paul changes that line. It's not just talking about all humans. He changes it to you put everything under his feet the perfect human Christ. And so we're like, wait a minute, Paul. The, the, the Psalm says everything is under their feet, the humans, <laughs> but you change it to his feet, Christ, which is it? And Paul's like, bingo, I meant to do that. I meant to make you ask that. Bingo, it's both. It's both and. Paul's teaching something profound about us being united in Christ. What happens to Jesus will happen to us. Jesus rose from the dead, will rise from the dead. Jesus has given all authority over Satan and demons and evil. We will be given all authority. You understand this? This is absolutely profound here. Everything will be put under our feet. 
Verse uh, 27, read on, you guys. We're getting through this text. It says, now when it says everything has been put under him, it's clear this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. You guys, I know this is thick and you're like, man, I, I'm kind of lost. I don't know what's going on in this chapter right now. My mind's wandering. I'm watching the birds and the fountains. Totally, watch the fountain. This is thick, but... Um, Here's, what, here's, here's this last section. Paul is showing us that Jesus is submitted to the Father. Just like his earthly life, something about this will continue on where Jesus eternally honors his Father. That's what Paul's saying. I don't have much else to say about that verse. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you wanna kick around with friends around a bonfire. What does that look like? Jesus submitting to the Father forever? What is that? Have no idea, but now Paul gets back on point as we wrap up. I told you Paul starts all like thick with eschatology and then he gets practical. Here's where he gets practical for how we live. Verse 29, he says, now if there is no resurrection, remember this is the problem from last week. The Corinthians aren't believing their bodies will rise. They're living as though they just float away forever. And this is a problem. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection, verse 29, he says, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead aren't raised, why are people baptized for them? Okay, this is not a problem we have today. None of us are tempted to go baptize ourselves for dead people. This is something they thought was great in that culture. And Paul doesn't condemn the practice or condone it. The point is, he's like, you guys think this whole baptism for the dead thing is so, so great and such a great work. Why do it if there is no resurrection? That's the question. So we could use a different example. For us, we could say, why sacrifice your time and money for homeless in a soup kitchen if there's no resurrection? Paul says, literally all those good works, pointless without a resurrection. This is his argument. Like if the dead don't rise, why treat your body or anyone else's body with respect? Why work for criminal justice reform? Why work against systemic racism? Why fight for the lives of the unborn? If the dead don't rise, what's the point? Paul's saying, it's a hardcore argument. Paul has strong feelings about the resurrection. According to Paul, it gives meaning to all of the good things in life. We need this vision. According to Paul, if we work for justice in Jesus' name while doubting the resurrection, we're contradicting ourselves. Do we think this way? Paul's saying we need to. The gospel is at stake in our lives. The power of the gospel depends on this. And verse 30, he uses another example from his own life. He says, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts, he's, we think he's talking about persecution. If I endured persecution in Ephesus with no more than human hope, as opposed to resurrection, what do I gain? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, he says. The only thing that makes sense, if your body won't come out of the ground, the only way to live that makes sense, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. All the good works and human ethics and focus on justice and humanitarian efforts, pointless, no resurrection. This is the reality Paul is trying to get us to bite into. Paul's like, if the dead don't rise, 
Also, why do I submit to regular suffering? <laughs> why, why do I participate in, in activity that makes me suffer for the gospel? And Paul describes some of his suffering in his second letter to Corinth. In chapter one, he says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. Did you hear that? <laughs> so whoever said God never gives you more than you can handle, never read Paul. It's not in the Bible. God totally totally gives us more than we can handle. He says it right here. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself, Paul says. And listen, Paul doesn't give the answer. There's no answer for some of the meaningless suffering in the world. Paul doesn't give a reason or an answer or an explanation. Instead of answers, he has a framework. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, all of this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is the framework for everything you endure that hurts, that doesn't make sense, that seems like purposeless pain. When you're enduring it and you're like, why God? That stuff, Paul says, it's so that you don't rely on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. So this is Paul's framework for life, you guys. He's not saying it answers anything in the moment. <laughs> there are no easy answers for Paul. And if this resonates with you, if you're going through inexplicable suffering, there's no easy answers. Anyone who gives you a Bible verse to try to like solve it, that's not, that's not the helpful thing in the moment almost any time when you're in the middle of pain. Paul's not giving easy answers. He's definitely not saying to seek out suffering either. He's saying when suffering does come, our framework for hope, we don't rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's resurrection. Church family, that's the only framework that makes sense of this stuff. The physical hope of life to come. We don't rely on ourselves. We rely on God who raises the dead. You guys, one in eight Christians live in countries where physical persecution is an ongoing threat. That's 340 million of our brothers and sisters right now. The single reason our persecuted family can tolerate and participate in that suffering, we don't rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That last phrase is everything. The Corinthians believed in God. They did not believe in God who raises the dead. They preached a God who rose Jesus from the dead, like some creed, and they recited it, and then they went home. But what that implies is that your body will emerge from the soil in a restored economy, where this world is our home forever in the presence of Jesus. This is the concrete hope of, of life now. There are several members of our church right now who are going through just extremely like tough stuff, amputations, the loss of children, stuff most of us will never have to suffer. If there's no resurrection, what's the point? Something amazing happened while I was writing this sermon Right after I wrote that last paragraph, like no joke, immediately after I wrote what I just said, 
I get a text from a lady in the church who was on a plane weeping between two people in a middle seat with news that the night before her brother rolled, her little brother rolled his truck and died in an accident. And her text, the timing, the text was full of concrete hope in bodily resurrection. This didn't stop her from sobbing in the middle seat of a plane. It just gave her a framework. The only framework that makes sense. We don't rely on ourselves. We rely on God who raises the dead. Let's let that framework dictate how we see life. I really believe as Western Christians, we tend to neglect this. There's really two things we neglect. And they're two sides of the same coin, two doctrines. And these doctrines help us in suffering. But as Western enlightened scientific people, we neglect them. And the two doctrines are theology of the demonic and a theology of the resurrection. Two sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand, the demonic and the resurrection. What do I mean? When you have a really good theology of the demonic, spiritual warfare, to use an old term, when you have a solid theology of demons, uh, then you have a framework for meaningless evil. There's purposeless pain in the world that God does not will. Why? Because there are other wills in the world, other evil wills, humans and demonic entities that are at odds with God at every level. And God is fighting that. And he empowers us to fight it along with them. Honestly, this is the only way I can make sense of tsunamis and pandemics and earthquakes right over, right under cities instead of out in the wilderness. It's the only way I can make sense of seemingly meaningless suffering in the world. Theology of the demonic puts it in framework. I can't tell you how freeing that is, how freeing that is to your worldview. You, you realize we all, we all kind of need there to be a Satan, right? We all kind of need there to be a Satan. Uh, even if we don't believe Satan exists, we'll, we'll make God Satan. Be like, why God? You see that? See how that works? But when we believe Jesus, that there is real evil at odds with God's will in every sense and God is actively fighting, we now have Jesus's perspective on meaningless pain. This is why it's so, so important to have a solid theology of the spiritual battle we're in, which leads to the other side, have a solid theology of resurrection, you guys. When, when your future looks like your physical body coming out of the ground, that's something you can envision, right? This body in this world fully restored. I can, I can like visualize that. Here's what I can't envision. Bright pastels and naked baby harps floating on clouds. Like I can't envision that. I think of that forever. It sounds like hell, you guys. Just a church worship service forever. Hell, like I'm not interested in sitting in a pew and singing forever with no vocation and sense of place in the universe. I, that's, I can't envision that. There's at least two problems with that picture. Number one, it's wrong. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. An eternal state of bliss in a disembodied future, not the biblical picture of eternity. And number two, the problem, since I can't picture it, it can't motivate me. It's not concrete. It's 100% abstract. It's fluff. I'm trying to build my life on that hope. And it's like, 
catching wind, right? So if that's your picture of eternity, no wonder you don't feel a sense of hope when you suffer and you're like, you feel that grief or pain in your body. We need to let the scriptures shape our view of the future. Your body will rise out of the ground. Your body, the one you are now, renewed and remade. Because in Christ, what happened to Jesus will happen to you. Do you see why this makes so much sense of the world and grounds you in so much hope? You will then, after you rise, you'll partner with Jesus in ruling and reigning and ridding the world of every last trace of injustice. Don't let this culture tell you otherwise. It's working overtime to tell you otherwise. Verse 33 says so. Paul says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. In other words, this culture in the West is working overtime to get your attention off of your resurrection. The big three idols of culture are the same as they've always been. Sex, money, power. We make idols out of sex, money, and power. Jesus talked about them a lot. This is why Paul writes 1 Corinthians, all about sex, money, power. The gravity of our culture is constantly pulling us away from resurrection and toward the misuse of sex and finance and influence, power, right? I mean, our, our, the, the power brokers of the world, entertainment moguls, politicians, they benefit massively when you're distracted from resurrection and misusing your sex, money, and power. They benefit a ton. So as we wrap up and come to the table, listen to Paul. We're gonna come to the table where Jesus said, this is my, does he say, this is my soul broken for you? It's like, this is my body broken for you. And, and Paul's saying, your body will rise. Listen, he's saying, regarding sex, this is Paul. About sex, Paul's like, don't you realize God made your body, you are a sexual being. That is so good. So good, which means you will continue to be a sexual being in the resurrection. Did you hear that? You will continue being a sexual being in the resurrection in a perfect sense that you can't even fathom right now. In fact, Matthew 22, Jesus says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, which means whatever is going on sexually in the resurrection, it's something better than marriage for everyone. And it's completely God-honoring. And it's completely embodied. And it's completely eternal. Did you hear this? Paul's saying, don't you realize you'll be risen, a sexual being. And then regarding money, Paul's like, don't you realize God made us innovative. Humans are innovative innately, which means there's going to be a renewed economy. How else are we going to share our innovation except through economy and currency? And whatever we call money in the resurrection, it'll be equally honoring, equitable, perfect, and full of integrity, you guys. And he says, regarding power, which is the same as influence. If you ever hear the word influence, just know it's a synonym for power. Regarding power, Paul's like, haven't you read Daniel? <laughs> like, you, you will have all authority and power that Jesus has, all influence in the resurrection with Jesus. And so do you see what this means, you guys? Do you realize what the resurrection means for your sex, money, and power? It means you don't have to buy the reduced price versions our culture's trying to sell you. Because you get the real thing forever. And you get to live that way now by the power of the Spirit. And that work will last then. My goodness. 
No wonder Paul ends, the ends this text. This is the last verse. He ends it in verse 34 saying, come back to your senses. <laughs> I love that. Come back to your senses as you ought and quote, stop sinning, he says. <laughs> Super blunt. Come back to your senses, stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God and I say this to your shame. So church family, as we come to the table, this is the simple call. This is the call. Let resurrection shape your view of the future. So wake up, stop sinning, which means stop misusing your body, your finances, and your influence, and let Jesus' teachings around sex, money, and power shape us because those are actually for your flourishing forever and, and for the healing of the world. So stop opposing Jesus and dehumanizing your body and other people's bodies because if you follow Jesus, your resurrection will happen. It's inevitable. You will rise from the dead. One day your body comes up in a renewed world where sexuality, currency, and influence are perfected. Perfectly networked. The whole social network of the resurrection will be perfected for the flourishing of every human being. So here's the call. You have practices you do with your body around sex and money and power, right? We all do. All of us have behaviors and practices around those things. So here's the question for followers of Jesus. Just think of your current practices around sex and money and influence and ask yourself this, will those practices last into the resurrection? Just invite the Holy Spirit right now. Feel free to take a breath, maybe close your eyes and just say, Holy Spirit, come. My whole life is open to you. All of my rhythms and practices around sex and money influence. Show me what will last that I'm doing now into the resurrection. So will those practices last? If yes, praise God, you guys. You will see, like Paul says in verse 58, your work was not in vain. It is hard work to partner with the Spirit, and it's not in vain. Now listen, if not, if there are areas of your life out of alignment with the goodness of Jesus around sex, money, and power, what is one practical way you can come under his alignment this week? Maybe it's telling the truth about your life to a trusted friend or spiritual guide. They call that confession of sin. Or maybe it's asking the Spirit to reveal an area of greed and refigure your budget. You guys, we're gonna have Mr. Winsted. He's a, he's a naval officer and a budget extraordinaire. He's gonna actually run a, a seminar in May for those of us who just have, a tr have trouble getting our finances to be brought under alignment with Jesus. And it'll be like a very practical stewardship seminar where we can say, God, look at my finances. What will last? What will not last? How can I be more generous? How can I be as generous as you're calling me to be? Maybe that's you. Or maybe it's something around your social network or your influence, or maybe your work priorities, whatever it is, I don't know. If it's out of alignment with the kingdom, what's one way this week? You and your community, bring it into alignment with Jesus. And listen, if you're here and you're not a follower, that was all for Jesus followers. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, the invitation is wide open to you. Join the family forever, you guys. 
the human project will continue on. How do you join? Admit your need of it. Admit your need of healing. You can't heal yourself. Along with the rest of us, we need healing. And so confess Jesus is the Lord of your life, of the universe, who makes your resurrection possible through his own resurrection and death. Holy Spirit, would you come now? We honor you, we praise you. We wanna come under alignment with you. We take this song and then the bread and the cup all as an act of saying yes to your teachings, yes to your goodness in our life. Have your way in our church, we pray.